It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And tonight, we come your way as we are about ready to make our way through the end of May. And a holiday is approaching. And, you know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in the first year when it was really so much more unpredictable, a lot of effort and a lot of concern centered around holiday weekends. And I know with the holiday of Memorial Day coming up, uh, it used to be that the gatherings was a, and a reason for alarm for folks because uh, the transmission of COVID was so widespread and, and, and really a lot more unknown than what we are today. But we fast forward to May of 2022, and here we are now uh, surpassing a milestone in our country of 1 million deaths as a result of COVID-19. But I, I think we can also uh, talk about the number of people that probably have survived COVID because of getting their vaccines, which came out just over a year and a half ago. So we'd like to continue to to be a trusted source of information on where things stand with COVID, uh, not only in our region, but across the country. And with us to do that, as she's been for much of the past two and a half years, is Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And and Heather, I, I like to continue to focus on this because we see across the country that the numbers of cases continues to uh, inch back up. And I know people start hearing about that. And so, well, what is what is the situation in our area? So as we take the air tonight with that one million deaths, and certainly I know there's also the positive side of things that the vaccine and how many people and how many lives have been saved. Where are we at tonight uh, in May of 2022? Sure, Jim. Um, just like the rest of the nation, we are starting to see our data inch up a little bit. Um, not huge spikes, but again, as we've watched over the last two and a half years, our data go up and our data go down. It's time for us to, again, rethink what we're doing in our personal lives. What are we doing for our mitigation strategies for our family, especially with the upcoming Memorial Day weekend? We have graduations coming up. Just finished um, prom season, Mother's Day, Father's Day is coming a lot of potential gatherings, and with our data inching up, it's it's another time we need to just step back and think about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and are we protecting the loved ones in our lives? And we've talked about the many, many ways we can do that, from vaccines to small groups to wearing, wearing your face coverings, all of those mitigation strategies. But as of um, today, our data on our website shows that our combined um, Benton and Franklin County combined rate has increased by about 15.15% over our previously uh, reported data. So again, that's not a huge spike, but it's certainly inching up. And, and that's consistently what it's done over the last few weeks in our bi-county region as it continues to inch up and inch up. And that's that's not the direction we want to go. Um, it's also important to remember that the at-home rapid antigen tests are not reported to us. And so this is only the information from those test sites that are doing the PCR testing, which is still required to be reported to the health district. So we're missing a huge piece of the data as to exactly what the disease burden is in our community. And that 
is where we look at some other indicators, such as that wastewater testing that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And it, too, is showing an increase in um, concentration of virus within those uh, samples taken from the wastewater. So like we've said, we can't look at this point at just one piece of data. We need to look at multiple uh, pieces of data to put the whole picture together. And what it's saying in Benton and Franklin County is, yes, we are starting to see a little bit of an uptick. And that's the message to us to start thinking carefully about what we're going to do with our friends and family over the next few weeks. And another data point that we've watched closely is hospitalizations. I know where I work at Catholic, those numbers continue to be in the single digits, which is a good sign. And again, as you aggregate and and coalesce this data all into one piece of analysis, I, I suppose that that is good. But but where where do you think we are with with that concern right now? You know, we hear these numbers, and you know, we we've expected them to go back up. But but what's the level of concern during the holidays, like the, as a holiday approaches? Well, there are a lot of factors that can play into how it's actually going to look over the next few months, and those are the things that we're looking at very closely. And right now, we're still dealing with. Um, the variant that seems to be the predominant one, and we're kind of used to what it's doing, but we never know when a new variant is going to come along and totally change our current picture. So again, thinking back to what we've been through and the information we've gathered over the last two and a half years on how we really can protect ourselves as, as an individual, as a community, and as a nation, we need to continue to think about those things and put them into practice now. Um, you know, and, and hospitalization is, is something we're very, very concerned about because we saw what happened when the disease spiked very, very high. It overwhelmed our medical system tremendously, and we certainly don't want to get back to that. You know, hospitalizations, like you say, are still pretty low, but there's definitely, in some areas in particular, a slight uptick there as well. And we know that hospitalizations tend to increase um, a couple of weeks to three weeks after we start seeing wastewater uh, concentrations increase. So as we see the, the wastewater uh, virus level increasing, we would expect over the weeks, later that the hospitalizations would also increase. And then you add into it the coming holiday that you mentioned, Memorial Weekend, so that timing is probably not optimal as well, uh, given the day, given that timeline you just laid out. Right. You're exactly right. Where, What if someone, just remind our listeners, if someone has an at-home test, they test positive, and what what should they do uh, relative to quarantining and all of that if they get a positive diagnosis or a positive test? If you test, test positive with one of those at-home k- test kits, you really need to do diligence to protect those around you. We want you to, you know, certainly wear a mask when you have to be around people, and it has to be a good fitting mask. You know, do whatever you can uh, to protect those people. Best option is just stay home, stay away from people. But we want you to stay in that, um, you know, quarantined environment for five days unless, of course, your symptoms are pretty severe and they can 
continue, then you may need to stay even longer in quarantine. Um, Again, due diligence to protect those around you, protect others, wear a mask. And if you've been exposed to somebody with COVID, you also need to wear a mask and do some testing. And we encourage people to keep that stash of at-home antigen test kits. And if you've been exposed, you know, consider several days after your exposure to start testing, even if you're asymptomatic. But certainly if you start to get symptoms after an exposure, um, start doing your tests. And if you have good reason to believe you've been exposed and the first one comes up negative, wait 24 hours, do another one. We've noticed that sometimes people can start being symptomatic before they actually come up with a positive test. And that's why wearing that really good, tight-fitting mask is so very, very important in these situations. And if it's a case of after after that, um, what's, what's the, the advice for folks uh, relative to um, if they get a positive test, then, then if it's five days and the symptoms are, are gone by that five days, are okay to resume normal activities? You know, we look at a five to ten day uh, potential contagious period of time, and we really encourage people to be extremely careful when they know that they've had a positive test and not expose, especially those vulnerable people. We've seen continued outbreaks in our long-term care facilities with that vulnerable population, and so you would want to make sure you're protecting all of those especially vulnerable people in your life. And really quickly, before we go to our first break, you touched on the long-term care facilities. Last week, I think when we visited, you'd mentioned that there were some in hikes in, uh, in school transmission. Is that uh, still, are you still seeing that? Yeah, you know, we're still watching some potential outbreaks in schools, but again, um, comparing them to other environments such as long-term care, uh, we are seeing a little bit of activity, but not at extremely high rates, which is a very good thing. Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District, she has graciously agreed to stay for one more segment when we come back, and we'll talk to her more right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. We're talking about the latest with COVID-19 in our community. The number's starting to go up a little bit, but we're trying to provide the appropriate context in, in all areas of speaking. And at the top of the program, we did give the very sobering statistic that nationally, more than 1 million Americans have died from COVID-19 since the pandemic erupted in early 2020. And here we are two and a half years later and reached that uh, just ominous milestone. But we're visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And, and Heather, as you think about that number, I guess just reflect a quick second from, from your public health career. Of, of Just take that in for a second. Sure, it was. Um, when I heard that data this week, it was rather... Um, mind-boggling. It, it gave me reason to do a lot of thinking about, you know, events like this that have happened in my career in the past, and I can honestly say there really hasn't. This has been a very unique situation, and the only thing I can really compare it to really is what goes on with an influenza season. 
knowing that in in any year we lose 30 to 40,000 people a year to the flu and a really bad flu year is considered 60,000 deaths and here we are a million Americans have died over a two and a half year period of time from this COVID-19 virus and then I have to think to myself you know, what is too many? What what are we as a nation willing to accept as too many deaths? Is is a million people dying to COVID unacceptable? And for me, in the world of public health, we're we're in the business of preventing illness. And when we know that we have good tools that have been developed through this, and that's the I think that's my takeaway point when I reflect back on a million deaths is that's very sad, that's very tragic, it's very unacceptable in my public health perspective. But then I have to look at the improvements and look to the, the future and how we are better prepared to deal with this virus as we move on through the next years because COVID isn't going away. But again, I look at a million people and that's enough people to fill a very, very large city. Seattle's 700,000, Spokane's about 213,000, 214,000. And that is more people that live in those two cities, and that's a lot of um, heartache for families. But again, we need to look at what we have learned, what kind of lessons have we learned in the last two and a half years, and not lose sight of those. Use those lessons, um, improve on those. We were so fortunate to have the technology waiting, the technology to develop the vaccines that saved so many lives was waiting to be used for a situation like this. We knew it existed. They had been studying it for decades and along came COVID and we were able to put it into good use. We also have to think about how lucky we are that the vaccines were developed so quickly and typically Developing a vaccine takes so many years, and most of it's just strictly due to red tape and getting all kinds of FDA permissions. And this vaccine was fast-tracked past all the red tape. It doesn't mean the science wasn't there to prove it was a good vaccine, because it is. These vaccines are good, safe, effective vaccines. And so we need to look at the fact that the vaccines came along and we were able to actually save a lot of lives. I think about the number of people who would have died above and beyond a million if we didn't have the vaccines, we didn't have the treatment meds, we didn't have the science and technology to help support us on how to prevent the spread of this virus. And to me, in in, in my public health world, getting this all accomplished in two and a half years was pretty phenomenal. It was exhausting. And we're still not done with it. And we'll be able to take all the knowledge that we learned, put it into even better use as we move forward. On the word vaccines, and I know obviously it, it's so it's a little bit confusing because now we're into double boosts for uh, various age groups. But but talk a little bit about that, if you would. I know uh, you know the 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 thinking in with vaccines, and there's still a fair number of people who haven't even gotten one dose. But regardless of their effectiveness, um, I, clearly, you know, if it's not so much the risk to the vulnerable population. That is extremely number one, first and foremost. 
But then you've touched on this, and we've talked about it over the course of the past couple of years, is this long COVID symptoms. Vaccines also help mitigate that, do they not? Right. And the the name of the game right now is just prevent catching COVID. With vaccine, you're less likely to die from it. You're less likely to end up in the hospital. And even if you don't get very, very sick with COVID, we know that people do develop those long COVID symptoms. And we're just learning more and more about them from what it does to your, your internal organisms or your organs, your, your cardiac system. But we also hear about people complaining of brain fog and how it affects their neurological functions. And these are things that we'll be studying for years to come, exactly how does this virus cause all these problems inside the human body. And getting a vaccine can prevent you from catching COVID, which would ultimately prevent you from getting long COVID, which could be a lifetime debilitating um, sequelae to catching this virus. And that's where I I think we really need to look closely at what the vaccines have done to improve our health as a nation, and not only as a nation, but improve the health in our community and improve the health in our family. Because I really do hear these, these stories about families who have done all the mitigation strategies, vaccinated, and have made it through two and a half years so far with nobody in their family catching COVID. And that is a testament to exactly all of those strategies we've been wanting people to put into place, including vaccines. So going forward, is it, is it a case with, with where we sit today, the, the, you know, I think in Benton and Franklin counties, the, you know, we touched nationally of the death rate. Uh, Benton and Franklin counties, if my numbers are correct, uh, it's the leading cause of death in what, 2020 of Benton and Franklin counties was COVID? Um, Let's see, in Benton County in 2020, actually, for for both our counties, it was major cardiovascular disease. For Benton County in 2020, it was number four. For Franklin County, it was the number three cause of death. So it may not have made the number one for 2020, but to me, to have this new novel virus come along and suddenly appear in our top ten causes of death, That means this was a serious virus, and it continues to be a serious virus. And I think it will be interesting to look at our our data for 2021, 2022. Um, Now that we do have good vaccines, will we see COVID cause of death go down the list? And I'd like to see it ultimately not end up on the top 10 list because it's vaccine preventable. Absolutely. And, And the final minute, if you would, is are we just at a point where, you know, and I think people might be okay to live with this, given where we are with the numbers seemingly under control, the hospitalizations and all these data points that we're monitoring. Is this just kind of our our life that, uh, you know, that that we can continue to to live our lives? But at the same time, we're going to still have to monitor all of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, COVID, like we've said, even when we've um, seen our decrease in data in the past, COVID isn't done with us. COVID will be here for many, many, I suspect, years to come. We don't know exactly how it's going to look tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now. And that's why we really need to continue to let our scientists keep researching it, studying it, watching us, and giving us the best messages possible in how to prevent this and creating vaccines 
that will protect us against whatever variant of concern comes our way. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. As always, thanks so much for your time. Back with the second half of Cadillac on Call in a moment. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And if you missed any part of our program, you can listen to Catholic on Call via your favorite podcast platform. Just Google Catholic on Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And, you know, would you know the warning signs of stroke if all of a sudden uh, you started to feel uh, some symptoms? Uh, We want to make sure that you do. And with us tonight is Kaylin Wyatt, who is the stroke coordinator at Catholic Regional Medical Center. She's also a nurse by training, and we're really trying to focus at Catholic uh, throughout the month of May and all throughout the year to make sure our community and our listeners, uh, especially to this program, are aware of the warning signs of stroke. And Kaylin is with us tonight, and thanks for taking the time to be with us, Kaylin. And maybe just an introductory comment about what is the stroke is a, is a very uh, common, sadly, but it's also uh, something, something that we need to take very seriously, correct? Yeah. Hi, Jim, and thank you for having me on tonight. Um, you are correct. Stroke actually happens more than we would like to think. Um, about 800,000 people in the United States have a stroke every year. And of those, um, about 185,000 strokes are new to somebody who has never experienced the symptoms. So um, it is something that, you know, one in four people who have had a previous stroke could end up having another. And um, so it's, it's very prevalent. It's something that we, we take seriously at the hospital and work really hard to set up um, things, guidelines, different routes, um, and work with different agencies in the area to make sure that we are, are taking care of our, our community. Well, let's jump in. I know you have some some acronym words that, that are, are, are quite helpful to help us all uh, try and remember what these symptoms are. But walk through them if you could uh, for us. Uh, the acronym that we use, um, EMS in the area as well as the hospital to recognize the stroke is BFAST. It's um, B is for balance, so if you have balance instability um, or difficulty walking, E is for eyes, um, any loss of vision in one eye or blurred vision. F is for face, so facial drooping. Um, A is for arms and legs, so if you had numbness or tingling or um, loss of, of the use of an arm or a leg on one side or the other. S is for speech. And that is um, if you have trouble speaking or understanding speech. And T is time, because we really need to call emergency services as quickly as possible to try and get some help for that person. Uh, Let's kind of work our way through those each, uh, if we could. uh, And we'll end with time, because I wanted to focus on on the ones that you described earlier on. It's certainly the people that are suffering them can notice them, but is it just as important for whoever's around them to observe these uh, symptoms that you just described? Yeah, absolutely. When you are around someone, they may be confused if they're going if they're experiencing a stroke. And um, being aware of these different signs and symptoms of stroke is a way to help those that you love, anybody that you see out in the community. Because, um, again, it is, it's imperative that we get that person assistance as quickly as possible. 
So you could start, um, you know, sitting down to have dinner and hear your grandparent or your parent um, begin to have difficulty communicating and and then go through those different um, neurologic signs or symptoms to see if they have other things that are going on. Um, and they're new, they're new onset. So it's a change in behavior of that person. And you mentioned that to act on them, what does that mean? Does that mean call 911 and, and get the experts to your home or wherever you're suffering these symptoms? Absolutely. We, you know, really want them to have that um, immediate medical attention. And we work closely with agencies to ensure that they are able to respond and evaluate a stroke out in the field. Um, but another reason for us to call 911 is that they can call us ahead and call into the emergency department. And when that happens, it sets up a series of events where we have a team that comes together at the hospital and um, clears out the head imaging area. Um, It allows our emergency workers to bring somebody directly back to the CT scanner. Um, It allows us to get the medication that we need and, and to screen that person to see if they are eligible to get that medication to help break up a clot. If you would, when someone... I maybe in our final segment, we're going to visit with our friends from emergency management services in Richland. But if you would, when someone gets to the hospital, when the ambulances arrive at the hospital, walk us through what that what kind of treatment and you, you touched on CT scans. Is, is is that the preferred mode of imaging that helps uh, helps in the treatment and diagnosis process? You know, it is. Um, And one of the things that we're looking at that is um, about 87% of patients that come in with these signs and symptoms is experiencing what we call an ischemic stroke. And that's when a blood clot has traveled up to the brain and it's actually preventing blood flow to a different part of the brain. And so the other part of that is a hemorrhagic stroke where they could be experiencing bleeding in the brain. And so we need to know which of those um, that we're, we're dealing with so that we can, in, you know, in essence, treat that patient appropriately um, and make sure that they either can get the medication and um, are. And, and you mentioned, you know, what happens when our emergency services shows up. Um, they do some of that screening out in the field. They'll ask questions about medications that someone's been on. They'll evaluate blood pressures and blood sugar for us. Um, And they also help look at blood pressure and um, see whether or not somebody is in a good position to get the medication that they need or if they have a a bleed in their brain, if that CT scan shows us that it's a bleed, um, then we really need to know that so that we we don't, they get excluded from getting that medication. So a lot of work goes into this, and I know Cadillac just received a a, a renewed accreditation from a national accrediting body. Just talk about the significance of what that means to have that seal of approval, if you will. Well, that is um, what what we call a primary stroke certification, and that's provided to us from the Joint Commission. They're an accrediting body that we look to to set a gold standard for care in stroke. Um, and once we uh, get that certification, you know, we've worked very hard to maintain that for several years, and um, we actually hold on to it for three years after that certification is received. Um, it gives us additional ability to apply to um, be a stroke level two center for the Department of Health. And so it, it helps um, emergency services know what type of um, care we provide. 
it really sets a, like I said, a, a gold standard that we are looking at the best practice advisories that are out there um, and following the best practice advisories to ensure that our policies, our guidelines at the hospital are in alignment with those. Before we let you go, I'd like to have you talk to us, if you would, just you know, you talked about the incredible amount of teamwork that's required, uh, certainly within the hospital, the, the fire and emergency services. But the listeners to this program can be heard all throughout eastern Washington and northern Oregon. And so that's a, a quite a wide geography. But, but if you would t- talk a little bit about the importance of the relationships with some of the smaller outlying hospitals that don't necessarily have the specialty ability to treat but they certainly play a key role uh, when a stroke patient comes into their emergency departments. Absolutely. I mean, in in the scheme of things, we really just need somebody to be evaluated and to get that, that conceptually to know what we're dealing with um, out in, in those outlying areas. And, and there are a lot of smaller locations or what we call critical access hospitals that are able to administer the clot-busting drug or um, and and then once that's completed, they can transfer to Cadillac for that higher level of care that we provide and monitoring those individuals um, and then, you know, completing those neurologic reviews with the patient over a period of time to make sure that um, that they are receiving the care that they really need. And, um, and the goal truly is to get keep people close to home. You know, we want to be able to service this area, um, our entire region. Um, We want to do that effectively and provide the best care possible and and keep people close to home um, as much as we can. Well, congratulations to you and the entire team. I know there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining and earning and and building on these these types of accreditations. And the bottom line, that's of great comfort to uh, members of our community. Kaylin Wyatt, the Stroke Coordinator at Cadillac Regional Medical Center, thanks so much for your time. Back with our remaining minutes of Cadillac on Call in just a minute. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. And in our ongoing efforts to make sure you're all aware of the warning signs and symptoms of stroke, we're happy to have with us Captain Andy Sabin, who is with the Richland Fire and Emergency Services Department, a key, key partner uh, with hospitals like Cadillac to be able to provide emergency treatment for not only stroke, but heart attack and other types of trauma and and just medical services that, that require uh, emergency care. So, Captain Andy Sabin, wake, thanks for taking a minute to be with us tonight. Maybe just in a, a minute, if you would begin with, talk about the role that you and your colleagues play relative to our topic of stroke. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on tonight. We, we provide emergency service for um, Richland specific, but Tri-Cities too. And um, when we are looking at treating people for stroke, uh, time is one of the most important things. That's what we try to focus on. And Kaylin did a, a great job of kind of outlining, you know, the signs and symptoms of a stroke. And those are things that we're trained at to look for. And um, we, we really focus on getting those people to the hospital as quickly as possible. And I think the the most important part that I want to drive home to people tonight is that when we 
are are called to somebody who suspects they might be having a stroke, we can we can get the ball rolling um, in partnership with the hospital. So we can call ahead, we can activate a stroke team, and they can start preparing for that patient uh, before they even get there versus having somebody um, be driven down to the hospital themselves and they just show up on the front door and they're kind of behind the eight ball on those things. So you can activate, obviously, through communication means to with the hospital and, and the team there. But what, from a from a treatment diagnostic perspective, do you do in the field? Can you do while you're uh, preparing that patient to be transported? Yeah, we can we can begin treatment and kind of do some of the things that the hospital needs uh, before they can uh, take that patient to the CT. So we can get started with taking blood pressures. We can. Uh, evaluate those blood pressures and see if we can do anything to to lower those if they're too high. Uh, We can um, establish IV access so we can give any medications that that patient may need. Um, We can do, um, in the cases of severe stroke where a patient's not able to uh, maintain their own airway, we we can take care of that for them. And those are all things that that patient needs to be stabilized before they can kind of begin that first treatment um, at the hospital. If you wouldn't, I don't mean to put you on the spot with with a a question like this, but I know all of the communities and using the Tri-Cities, the three main communities in the Tri-Cities, for example, I know you have, your teams are strategically placed, and for your case out in Richland, in general, how soon can you get, can a crew get to somebody's home? Just a matter of a couple of minutes in most cases because of where, the proximity to where uh, you, you and your colleagues are located throughout Richland, for example? Yeah, Richland specific. We we just opened our fifth station last year, and th- those are placed. So we're our goal and a gold standard is to be able to um, be to a patient when we get dispatched within four minutes. Um, so most of the time we can we can hit that number. A lot of times we can get there quicker. Uh, the only time that we we do exceed those times is if um, your first due station is out on another call and it has to be covered by another station, but. Again, those are those are things that are planned way in advance uh, with population growth, with the way the city is developing, that we put those stations and the second due stations in places where we can um, get to those people as soon as possible. And I know it's also the case in the treatment of heart attack, these same numbers and the, the, the quick response is 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 required. And I know that's all measured. I think that in the hospital terminology, you touched on your goal is to get to a home within four minutes. But I think uh, there's also standards of, of how long they can administer treatment in many cases uh, for these types of patients. So again, there's a lot of teamwork at play. Yeah, absolutely. We um, Stroke specific, we, we can actually um, do our um, treatment and evaluation in the field, and if those stroke symptoms have began within 24 hours, we can still call ahead to the hospital and activate a stroke team. And it's up to them to to decide the treatment from there. But we we want people to call us early if they they think they're having a problem. Um, we don't want their misconceptions to get in the way. So let let us be the deciding factor. And we can call ahead to the hospital and get that that ball rolling. And I know this has been hampered into me over the years is don't drive yourself. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I would go even further and say don't have a family member or friend drive you either. Um, like I said, there's things that we can do to get, get ahead of the game. And um, especially if a lot of people that do experience strokes, they can have uh, what's called a TIA where it's almost like stroke symptoms and then they disappear, but they can, they can come back. So if a person like that got into the vehicle because they kind of felt better, those symptoms could still come on again and then it could cause, um, who knows, another accident or uh, something even worse. But, yeah, definitely don't, don't drive yourself and call 911 and let us, let us serve the community. I have just a minute or so left, and I'd like you to broaden your final answer to address uh, every week in my mind should be National EMS Week, given the performance of emergency responders uh, throughout the past two and a half years with the pandemic. But as you and your colleagues celebrate this kind of week and, and, and acknowledge the work that you and first responders all throughout the country do, maybe just a, a shout out to, to people in your line of work about what it's been like the last year, couple of years, and, and, and where you are uh, mentally, and I guess w- why you do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, we're honored to, to do what we do. And every one of us that are in the fire service and EMS world, um, we, we come to work and we're ready to take on whatever it is that comes our way. And Pandemic aside, um, we that was just another thing that came onto the the scene in our plate that that we had to learn how to do, and we adapted very quickly, and um, we we just learned to cope with what it was, and we we're always going to risk ourselves to to help other people, and that's that's something that is pretty admirable, and we we're happy to do it, and the the fact that. We have a, a week to dedicated to celebrating our service is, is pretty cool, but um, that's that's not why we do it, and we're we're happy to serve. Well, on behalf of everybody listening to this program, please pass along our thanks to all of your colleagues that uh, are there all the time, and it's twenty four seven. Captain Andy Sabin with the Richland Fire and Emergency Services talking stroke and National EMS Week. Uh, Andy, thanks for taking the time to be with us, and thanks all of you for listening. We'll talk again next week. <laughs> 